The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One thing we've noticed at CISA and others have noticed too is that right now, if you look at the, the list of CVEs, they're the most impactful vulnerabilities. CISA also publishes the, the known and exploited vulnerabilities list which shows which vulnerabilities we know have been leveraged in cybersecurity incidents. It's very hard, I've tried myself, to actually learn from this what the most common causes of these vulnerabilities are. And um, even more so, how these are tied to cybersecurity incidents in the wild. I'm Paul Rosenzweig, contributing editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd, 2023. Our topic today is software liability. It's generated by President Biden's cybersecurity strategy, which proposes to impose liability on those who manufacture software with code problems within it. I sat down with Lauren Zabriek, Bob Lord, and Jack Cable, who are senior advisors in the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security who are the go-to people on the topic of what it means to design secure software code. And as part of Lawfare's ongoing project to understand what secure by design might mean in practice, we're trying to identify the open questions, areas where research or inquiry might help our collective understanding of the concept and how it might work. In this podcast, CISA's three uh, senior advisors on the topic who work on the cutting edge of Secure by Design and implementation, give us their thoughts on research that would be of ongoing value to their efforts to define a Secure by Design standard. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 22nd, on the topic of Secure by Design. The project on Secure by Design was motivated principally by President Biden's new cybersecurity policy, which advanced the idea that there ought to be liability of some form or another for those who construct insecure software, which of course necessarily means that you have to have some form of definition of what is in fact secure software. One area in which one can examine that question is in this concept of secure by design, which is managing or measuring or examining security in the construction of software rather than at its output stage later in the series. Lawfare has begun a project intended to add some salt 
to the tale of the definition of what secure by design means. We were struck with the idea that for many people, at least, secure by design was as much buzzword as it was a practical and realistic idea that was implementable. So at the same time that President Biden was essentially from the top down creating the idea of liability for insecure software, our friends at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security, were, if I could characterize it, and this is my characterization, working from the bottom up trying to figure out what people were doing in the real world and how secure software coding could be implemented from the construction phase, from the coding phase, as it was developed to create the products that imbue so much of our lives. So I'm gonna break our discussion down into kind of three big buckets of concerns, issues. One is economics. How do we incentivize people to do the right thing? One is policy. You know, how do we make the decisions uh, as an interagency or within the government or outside of government for these incentives? And then the third is the heart of the matter, which is the technical side of this. What kind of technical uh, instantiations, ideas about secure by design are, are we looking at or should, be, should we be looking at? So I'm going to actually start at the technical level and ask you a question, Bob. I look at people who say we can do secure by design and add technical requirements. And then when I ask them what they mean by that, they almost always say, well, you've got to you know, provide for the enablement of two-factor authentication, and we should not have hard-coded passwords in, in gear. And that's kind of where they stop. And those two seem obviously right and obviously easy. And if you're not doing those right now, you know, Shame on you, but but it seems that seems to me like too much like low hanging fruit. So, from your perspective, what are some of the most impactful changes we can make on the tech side? Where should we be looking for secure by design in the technical context? Yeah. So, uh, and again, thanks for having us. I think this is a, this is a really great opportunity for us to share some of the things that we've been working on, and I think we have more questions than answers. And I think that that's an appropriate place. Uh, we do have some answers, we think, but we're also going to be flexible. And as we learn new things, we're going to change our minds based on data. So so I think, you know, if you go back and you take a look at the Secure by Design white paper that we released in April, and then we revised most recently uh, in October, what was interesting about it was the first version I think we probably spilled a little bit too much ink on some of the tactics that you were talking about. And one of the things that we did is we got a lot of feedback from folks saying, aren't the principles really what you're trying to talk about? And that is in fact, exactly correctly. So when you take a look at the evolution of quality and uh, safety for, and security outside of the software world, you start to see that there are certain patterns that have emerged that we just don't see in the world of software. And so that's why we went back and we really fortified the section on the principles, the core principles, because we think in many cases those are lacking. So while there are technical issues that we need to, to talk a lot more about, we really think that some of the core principles of taking ownership of your customer security outcomes. Like that's actually something that we should make sure that companies are thinking about at the highest levels, engaging in radical transparency. We don't really know what good looks like in terms of how sausage gets made. Like what is what is the best SDLC that you can imagine or what are the, the flavors? 
we we still have lots of models, but we don't have enough transparency from those who are building the the systems to really uh, democratize all of that. Uh, and then, of course, the the third principle is leading from the top, because when we take a look at the evolution of of security and and safety and quality outside of our world, it really comes down to senior most business leaders making it a business priority to drive the change. So we kind of start with that as as the framework and. In terms of the technology, you're exactly right. So I think a lot of folks do focus on some of those individual tactics. White paper has a number of them. They're all familiar to folks who've been around for a while. There isn't a single tactic that's going to be right for a company that is a cloud service provider versus one that's making a piece of software for your mobile phone. Like these are just very different environments. They have some commonalities, but they're really very different. And I think what we what we think about is really breaking things down into uh, the the traditional people and processes and technologies. Um, and if you think about things like training developers, many organizations have some amount of training uh, in within their organizations. In fact, some of them have fairly rigorous boot camps to make sure that their uh, their new hires understand uh, how to avoid cross site scripting vulnerabilities, which are uh, still a thing after all of these years. And they have to do that because even the top schools don't really teach security. So the, you know, folks may show up after having graduated with a great degree uh, from a great university, and they may never have really been exposed to the idea that there are intelligent adaptive adversaries and that there are specific technical things that they need to do in order to be responsive to those. And that's not a slam on the universities. That's not a slam on the individuals. This is just how the incentives, which I think you're going to talk about in a little bit, that's how these things are playing out. And so you think about some of the processes. One of the things that is interesting to talk about is the way in which organizations measure the cost of defects. So if you have a software product and it has defects, whether they're security or not, how does your organization think about those? How do they measure the costs? Defects have costs because you have to pull people off the assembly line. You have to redirect them to to some other thing. If it's a security-related problem, you probably have to stop them right now and get them refocused. And those those um, activities back when I was building these systems myself, these were incredibly expensive, and they all had to everybody had to stop right away. How do they measure the cost, the dollar cost of those, so they can start to make more informed decisions? And if you think about things like field tests, a lot of organizations have uh, have started to engage in what we call field tests to really understand how the customers truly deploy their products as opposed to what the product managers and the software developers expected. So what tools and technologies should they be talking about? Well, the field tests will give you the answer. When you there, There's one company that uh, conducted a field test. They didn't actually send people on a plane. They actually were able to look at the telemetry from their, from their product they discovered that about 40% of their product users were using it wrong. In other words, they were they were going through the initialization stage in a way that rendered much of the value of the product you know, irrelevant. And so they made some changes. They didn't make a change to the installation guide. They made a change to the installation code so that people couldn't make the kinds of mistakes that they were making. But so those are the kinds of insights that we think are super useful. And you know, I think it is, Getting a little bit closer to the the technology, we talked about a little bit about people and the processes. The technology is going to depend on what you do. I think when I take a look at 
the uh, the software defect reports that we get uh, through the the, the national uh, database of, of defects of CVEs, we see recurring problems over and over again. And what you see are are classic coding errors that are made over and over and over again, year after year. So if you take a look at the trend over years, cross-site scripting vulnerabilities or SQL injection vulnerabilities. These are a little bit tricky to prevent, but luckily modern frameworks give you the ability to, uh, assuming you don't do anything funny, to prevent those kinds of problems. And so when you see uh, well-funded organizations suffering from these things, I think in many cases, it may be that they haven't fully examined their tech stack against the more recent versions of those tech stacks. And the last thing I'll say is when I talk to some of the engineers in these companies, it's often the case that they'll say, you know, Bob, you guys didn't invent all this stuff. We have PowerPoint slide decks that we have gathering dust that explains how to do this. And so we have the technical know-how based on our current environment, the, the tech stacks that we use and our capability. We know how to fix these problems. We know how to eliminate entire classes of vulnerability, but we need to get the senior leadership to give us that space, that breathing room so that we can do that. And so I think when you think about the field studies, when you think about measuring the cost of defects, and you think about the fact that in many cases, there are people in the companies who know how to evolve all this stuff, connecting all of those dots is going to be the thing that will tell you exactly which piece of software is most ripe for improvement, for retirement, rebuilding, whatever it is. So I think those are the kinds of things that we need to talk about, even though we're talking about, yes, at the end, at the end of the day, you should probably have a real strong opinion about MFA for your administrators. You should have a strong opinion about that. But I think that's more the downstream effect of thinking about things more clearly. So if you were to identify three kind of open questions in the tech space that were things you wanted to know about that you don't know about now, that you know somebody could go off in and do some you know either practical research or theoretical, doesn't matter, and come back to you that would really advance the ball. Would those revolve around how to measure defects? Would they revolve around transparency? Would they revolve around costs? What what would they what would they what would be the, the yeah. most interesting sorts of things in the tech space for you? Yeah. So I think um, one is uh, around uh, the software development lifecycle. So if you make software of any sort, you have an SDLC, whether you call it that or not, you have a software development lifecycle. And uh, getting more information from organizations about how they do that, especially from the ones who seem to have eliminated classes of vulnerability, I think much more transparency around that topic would be useful because we don't want to just leave high quality products to those wealthy, larger organizations. We want to find ways to democratize what good looks like within the software development lifecycle. So I think that would be one. You mentioned the economics, and I know you have some questions coming up on that. I think understanding which of the stakeholder communities, you know, how how do they all relate to each other? So it's not just the software manufacturers, it's not just their customers, it's the venture capitalists, the incident response firms, it's the, the education system. All of these things are, they're all stakeholder communities that, that play a role in how we uh, have arrived where we are, and will all play a role in getting us to this this next quantum improvement in in software quality. So those are two, and let you know. I, let me see if if Jack and Lauren have a third. 
that they want to talk about, or maybe you want to overrule my my first two. Very much uh, agree with those, Bob, and I'll, I'll offer one more. Um, and I imagine Lauren will will get into some more of this on the economic side. But really, one of the the most recurring questions we get asked is, okay, this is all really great. We agree with secure by design, but who's going to pay for it? Uh, because it's true that. Uh, many of the tactics that we talk about, like, say, rewriting software in memory-safe languages, aren't free or even cheap. It's going to have real costs to the companies to implement those. So one of the areas we're quite interested in further understanding is what are the actual costs to adopting some of these secure by design tactics. Um, and, and that will also help us then prioritize our advice. Uh, because we do think that there's certain actions that have immensely high yield, for instance, um, actions like removing default passwords or um, using common frameworks for database queries for um, displaying web content that can really eliminate entire classes of vulnerabilities. Um, so we want to better understand what the costs of some of these mechanisms to eliminate classes and vulnerabilities can be um, so that we can help prioritize our guidance. Yeah, and, and I would just add to that on the question of who pays for this. You know, this obviously is a guiding question for us, right? We we talk about, you know, we we won't be able to really address the software and security problem until we address, you know, this question of who pays. And I think this is really important for not only software manufacturers, but you know, for the for the entire industry and and, and the ecosystem. But we also have to really broaden this idea too and talk about the, the larger costs that make, you know, a, a more complete picture here. Um, you know, what are the costs that are being borne also by the customers and, and really the public writ large because the public is, is the group or, you know, the most vulnerable, right, that are bearing this burden at this point. So, um, so yeah, certainly what are the costs? And then, you know, also thinking about, you know, overall, what are those, um, you know, negative sort of impacts to the uh, ecosystem now? What would be the impact of any market interventions that are undertaken as well? Well, all, all of those are really, yeah, really great insights. Uh, they leave so many questions. Let me, uh, let me pivot to one of them and come to you, Jack, kind of, because it's more of a policy question than it is a, an, a money and economics question, but it resonates in economics. But you, you know, rightly, I think, posited that there's a whole panoply of uh, people with responsibility here, from the developer to the implementer. I mean, you, 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 you did a whole list, and rightly so. What do you see as the ways of, you know, coordinating amongst all those people? What are the things that you're looking for in ways of understanding who's best suited to, to take the lead in any particular situation? How do CISA conceptualize, you know, it's a uh, uh, yeah, balance between, you know, what should be mandated, what should be voluntary, that whole nine yards of policy issues relating to pushing people in the right direction or nudging people, to quote my former law professor, Cass Sunstein. Great, um, certainly. And, and first of all, let me maybe uh, take a, a step back and go to what, what you opened with around the, the White House's national cybersecurity strategy. And I think it's important to note that secure by design, as you alluded to, really fulfills the, the two fundamental shifts that the strategy lays out. 
first by shifting the responsibility of cybersecurity from those least capable, whether small businesses, individuals, hospitals, school systems, you name it, onto those who are most capable, and namely in our work, the, the technology manufacturers. And second, as the strategy alludes to, we really need to be looking at the, the long-term activities that can actually drive down cyber attacks in the long run, rather than this continuous cycle we seem to be in of responding and mitigating cybersecurity incidents. Um, so as a result of that, we've been working really closely with a number of interagency partners to drive forward Secure by Design. And to the point of your question, we are looking at this from, from both kind of the, the approach of bottom-up and top-down. Um, so how, how that works out, um, and one, one thing you'll, you'll notice with us if you spend any amount of time with us is that we make a lot of analogies to the auto industry. Uh, maybe sometime later, Bob can take out his collection of unsafe at any speed copies by, by Ralph Nader, but really we think there's a lot of parallels to be noted there. Um, and in that case, it, it was indeed a combination of both uh, top-down um, enforcement and bottom-up uh, work on behalf of the auto manufacturers. Um, likewise, at CISA, we, we really see our role as helping facilitate the kind of common knowledge base of what good looks like here, what sorts of actions should software manufacturers be taking, um, and how we're going to go about this in the Coming year, for instance, you can expect to see us get much more specific and crisp in our asks to the software manufacturers um, and be working alongside them to get public commitments. So the first instantiation of this was with a pledge we did coming out of the White House's summit on K-12 cybersecurity. We worked with a number of the leading um, education technology software manufacturers to get solid commitments from them to specific secure by design actions. We're going to follow this up with a much broader secure by design pledge looking to get commitments from the largest software manufacturers across sectors uh, to show specific progress. Um, so that's all on the voluntary side. And, and at the, the same time, um, again, like we saw with the auto industry, we know that voluntary action isn't always enough. Um, so we're very encouraged by the, the National Cybersecurity Strategy's direction on software liability and continue to engage in those discussions. And like I mentioned, we really do see our role at CISA as defining the set of best practices that organizations should be adopting. Um, so for instance, what sorts of um, vulnerabilities and actions to get to some of Bob's points really are unacceptable and, and should we be urging companies to systemically eliminate? How can we at CISA uh, best go about defining the, these best practices. That's a, an interesting, that raises an interesting dichotomy, and this is slightly off script, so if it's outside the zone, just, yeah, I follow the questions where they want, but feel free to say, nah, not on today. But, um, you know, it's, it strikes me that, that at a tactical level, you know, the best standards mutate very rapidly because the nature of the threat mutates very rapidly. Uh, what is your perception of of how that would apply at the next level up at the at the principles level that that Bob was outlining earlier? Are you comfortable with the idea that collectively, whether it's you know CISA or CISA plus the community, we can identify principles that are uh, sufficiently enduring that they can guide us for the next three to five years before we have to revisit them? 
We do think so. And that's really what we aimed to lay out with our Secure by Design white paper, the, the principles that Bob mentioned of taking ownership of customer security outcomes, leading with radical transparency and accountability, and leading from the top, ensuring that the, the business leaders of these software manufacturers really are driving the, the secure, security shifts in their organization. Um, so we do think that these principles are going to be enduring and something that will guide us through the, this transformation with Secure by Design. The specific tactics, actions that manufacturers should be taking can and likely will change over time. Um, so it's important to build in flexibility there. Uh, but really, we do um, think that we can align around the, these principles. Indeed, we've had robust um, international alignment. Uh, we're up to, I believe, 13 countries who have co-sealed our Secure by Design guidance, including the Five Eyes, various EU member states, Japan, South Korea, Israel. So some really broad international showing. Um, and the, the principles are front and center. They're guiding us forward. Of course, it's not just enough to have the high-level principles. We need to distill those down into specific actions companies should be taking. But uh, to your point, we, we do think those can be enduring. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. 
as this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So same, same broad question that I asked Bob from your policy perspective, where are the gaps in your knowledge? Where are the things that you would love people to help you fill in your, your knowledge base so that you would be better positioned to move that whole principles development process forward? Great. I'll offer a couple and also welcome Bob and Lauren to chime in. Uh, but really one of the, the biggest questions we have is how do we look at existing standards, existing frameworks, and tie those together when it comes to secure by design. Um, so there's a wide variety of framework standards coming out of NIST, international standards, industry that lay out expectations for security, many of which focus on software development. And one of the kind of enduring questions we've received and we, we'd like to put back to the broader public is how do we go about harmonizing these and how do we go about ensuring that we have an agreed upon definition of what secure by design looks like. Um, and, and kind of a related question to that is what is the right balance of outcome-based factors versus process-based components? Um, so if you read our secure by design white paper, you'll see that there's a mix of both. And um, part of that was intentional because we think there's specific aspects of products that can be measured as an outcome. For instance, there, there should never be a default password in that product um, and, and other components like they should use a well-known framework to make database queries and so on. But there's also these broader process questions like how are you training your developers? 
or how are you as a business approaching security? Um, so, so I think we'd be quite interested in exploring what is the right breakdown there, um, particularly as, for instance, conversations around the, the national cybersecurity strategy and liability advance. Where should we be looking to specific product-focused outcomes versus what are some of the broader processes that should be in place to help enable those? That's exactly right. So understanding where where can we get the most benefit is it by understanding the the process by which the software is made uh, and helping establish uh, improved uh, guidance there is it in the outcomes based i think that's that's a really important that's an important uh, area for us to think about going back to one of the the statements you made earlier about how the the attacks are are changing and evolving this is absolutely true and yet we should acknowledge that there are organizations that have made tremendous, uh, they've provided tremendous insight into the recurring patterns. And so if you take a look at the OWASP top 10 list, yes, it does change every few years. It doesn't change enough. And what that means is that we haven't been as an industry good at eliminating classes of vulnerability. Like I said, I mean, you can do go on the internet yourself and you'll see the data. Cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, which I started playing around with in the mid 90s, are still a thing. And there's no technical reason why this should be the case. We're not lacking knowledge of this class of attack, how it works, um, or how to mitigate it. And so we have we have that as 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 a as an interesting thing to, to noodle on. We also have things like Jack mentioned memory safety. And last week we published a paper on memory safe programming programming languages. And the spoiler alert for those of you listening, we're in favor of memory safety. <laughs> that's, that's our official opinion. And we think people should do more. This is a problem that was first articulated more than half a century ago uh, in an Air Force uh, white paper. And if you argue that the, the nuance in this particular paper from 1972 was kind of lost on people, kind of hard to read, maybe it read a little bit too governmenty or military, Okay, that's fair. I'll, I'll grant you that. That that was a little bit difficult to understand. I don't think we were put on notice at that point, but we were really put on notice in 1996 when Aleph One published a, a paper in Frac Magazine, which of course all of your listeners uh, subscribed to back in the day, uh, or maybe even today. It was called "Smashing the Stack for Fun and Profit," and the 30th anniversary of this paper is uh, 1,060 days from now. Not that I have a countdown clock, and. So this is a class of problem that we have known about for quite a long time. And people have worked on it very hard. I mean, people have really thrown their backs into trying to figure out how to preserve our existing uh, fondness for CNC++ and to still have memory safety. And they've, they've done some truly astonishing things. Some of the technology that has come out of that has been astonishing. And yet, when you take a look at what the major manufacturers report, which is an example of uh, radical transparency. So thank you for everyone who's done this. They'll report that around two thirds of their code base vulnerabilities are related to memory uh, unsafe code. And so when I talk about measuring the actual dollar cost associated with each of these defects, some of them have actually started to do this and, and have made financial decisions, not technical decisions, but financial decisions to, to streamline their, their processes, and they can measure that over time. So I think just to piggyback on some of the other things Jack said, like these are examples of both process-related issues and outcome-related issues. And I think we, 
we need to know a lot more in order for us to to truly figure out what are those best practices. What are the things that we can point to and say, this has proven to work across several different companies. We think this should be enshrined in some of the other standards that that we already have. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in a couple things. First of all, wanted to note that there's absolutely a hundred percent chance that Bob does have a countdown clock. I've seen it. You know, I'm sure he's counting down all these different things. In addition to his uh, first edition of Unsafe at Any Speed and and other uh, notable books that that we've all been studying. But I, I also want to note, you know, really especially to to Jack's you know points about on the on the technical side is that this process has been very collaborative, right? This isn't us just sort of staying in our ivory tower and, you know, discussing amongst ourselves, right? We've been going out and talking with the security community, with industry, with, um, you know, nonprofit, you know, with customers, right? So, you know, and, and part of that, or part of the benefit of that is not only understanding what, you know, right could look like, but it's also understanding the challenges you know, faced by certain sectors. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Jack mentioned the K through 12 education technology vendor uh, pledge that is up. And, you know, that was really driven by this workshop that we had with a number of these vendors where we talked about some of these challenges. And I think there's such a benefit there, you know, to, to understand each other and really try to drive to this together, you know, in a collaborative way, because, you know, as, our director Jen Easterly said in her Singapore Cyber Week remarks that you know there are a lot of companies that want to do well. It's just that they're they're the incentives are misaligned, right? The market is misaligned, and you know just really incentivizes bad tech. But did want to plug to that we just released a, a blog on the the K through twelve workshop, um, you know, for for your listeners of your side, but. And then the last thing I'll say too is, you know, on this idea of costs and, you know, how much, you know, individual actions cost and things like that, we also have to consider the, the benefits, right? The upside of investing in these things and how they can balance out um, and, you know, what productivity, you know, and, and reinvestment can it, can those fixes or, or not fixes, but um, those investments yield for a particular company. So, you know, again, a lot of that that focus has really been on, you know, what's this going to cost me as a company, but we also have to be looking at the benefits, not only for the company, but, you know, for, for the public and our nation as well, but they're there and we need to study those as well. Well, all those are really good points. So I wrote a thing about auto liability and cybersecurity eight years ago. So, uh, I mean, I think it's a great analogy because it, it really does demonstrate that frankly, even if it's not liability doesn't wind up being imposed legislatively as the cybersecurity strategy seems to contemplate, it may come up organically as as the product of of court decision making. So all of that kind of actually leads to to the kind of next set of questions, which is that you you've all mentioned this several times that that you know we're seeking to you know assess costs of 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 defaults and you know, all. Who pays? <laughs> Lauren, what type of research is CISA looking at about payment models? Is this going to be, you know, imposed liability and costs are, are increased in the product and then paid for by the consumer? Is it going to be a, a, a socialized system? I use that with scare quotes for those who are only listening. You know, what is the right distribution 
How do we think about the right way to distribute risk amongst all the stakeholders? Because Jack identified, you know, a half dozen. Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And and I, you know, want to take a step back and, you know, really think about, you know, how we incentivize people to do the right thing. In a perfect world, you know, organizations, companies would do the right thing, but we're not in a perfect world. And so, you know, we have to understand that it's not easy and, you know, make sure that the market incentivizes the right thing. Right now, it is speed to market, uh, focusing on features and, and cost savings right now for companies. So how are we going to shift that and who pays? We, you know, we don't know. This is a question that we are intently focused on. Again, we want to understand what are the micro and the macro costs of just implementing certain investments, certain actions, but, you know, from, from also a, a macro perspective as well, um, you know, what are the upfront and sort of fixed costs and costs over time and, you know, how much it may cost to change, um, you know, to a memory safe programming language, per, you know, for example, what are some of the investments that need to be made in certain tooling and, and, you know, maybe even some investments in structuring the business. But also want to, you know, emphasize that we could make the secure way the easy way, right? And and make sure that what is invested in the business really helps the the, the developers, right, do what is needed. So, you know, certainly a, a really important question. Again, want to say that we, in this investigation of those particular costs, we also really want to take a, a, a wider step back here and understand, you know, what are the soft costs that customers are paying for as well, right? So um, to, to compensate for poor quality software, what, what are people paying for all the lawyers and the incident response firms and um, the crisis communications and lost productivity? That all goes into this this whole idea of cost to to customers and to the manufacturers and then of course in the aggregate that really leads into um, you know this residual business risk which then of course you know is is a really big national security risk is, is that an area where you have you think you have a knowledge gap you know how to not characterize but quantify these soft costs that you were talking about yes. Yeah, that those are areas that we want to understand more the soft and the hard costs, as we as we like to call on both left and right of boom. Um, luckily, we do have um, an office of, of the chief economist that we're working with. And so we're hopeful that we can, you know, kick off, kickstart a lot of this this research, but certainly welcome and look forward to, you know, the, the academic and research communities thoughts on this as well. What other kinds of uh, economic-related questions do you have that people could help with? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to this idea that these sorts of investments or, um, you know, making products secure by design will harm innovation, I think that's something that a lot of, I don't say a lot of people, maybe a lot of organizations are, are, are asking, right? Because I think that's the traditional way of framing it if we're if we're investing more in certain areas like security how is this going to impact innovation and what, what i would say is let's flip that around 
right? Our innovation capacity to me, like that capital is something that I think we as a country hold very sacred. We tout that as uh, this, you know, national capacity and, and, and benefit, right? But when we're dealing with shoddy technology, then that capital and that capacity is severely harmed and reduced, right? When we have this bad tech, our, our health, um, you know, physical, mental, et cetera, as well as our healthcare system is harmed. You know, our wealth is being drained to the tune of, I'll just say maybe ten, tens of billions, hundred billion. I don't, I don't know, but certainly in a, a very large magnitude. Um, but also our ability to focus on what sh- we should be doing, right? Our, our capacity to work on the hard problems. And instead that's kind of siphoned away by having to deal with the, these security problems. And I'll say too, that it's also, you know, if we, if we look at it from the standpoint of, well, you know, we have these constraints, I think that's when innovation also happens, right? Within a, a certain set and, there's certainly room to innovate within the idea of secure software. And so I would definitely question, you know, people when they say we can't do this, right? This, this is going to be, you know, harmful to, to that base. I would say, I, I would say quite the opposite. How do you measure innovation? Oh, Paul. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, we're, we're talking a lot about costs and, and the costs are real. You, we talk to, uh, about soft costs, but clearly on the other side, possibly of of this would be the soft cost of unrealized innovation. Sure. I, I mean, I take very seriously your point that that's not a complete explanation, but the, the instinct is not unrealistic. So how do you measure innovation, much less unrealized or deferred innovation? You know what? I, I don't know. I think I might have a doctorate if I could do that, but it's a, it's a good question. I think it's very similar to how you measure security. Is it the absence of, you know, attacks or is it, is it something else? I don't know. I, I think that's a, that's a really interesting area to, you know, to dive into as, you know, as researchers who are thinking about this problem. But I, I do think you're right. This idea of, of siphoning away unrealized innovative capacity is, I think, an under-discussed or underappreciated uh, risk to our national security, right? When we when we talk about going, you know, kind of toe to toe to our adversaries, we always say, well, you know, America, we've got our our innovative capacity, and, you know, and we're very innovative. We can develop all these things, but we don't have the people who can do that, right? Because they're being harmed in so many different ways. That is a huge risk to national security. So that actually kind of raises a uh, a, a broader question, which is a nice pivot. And I, I think I'm going to ask you to start with it, Jack, and then Bob to follow up, because these are kind of policy slash technical questions. What should we be measuring when we measure security? I mean, secure by design is great. And, and you know, getting top level buy-in and transparency, those are good things. But in the end, if I'm the CEO, I'm asking, yeah, how much does it cost? And what am I getting for it? And I, I don't I don't know that we have a good sense of that. What are the right metrics that we should be looking at uh, that are left of boom, I guess, or or right of boom, if you want, uh, resiliency metrics, or or is that another area where we need more work? That's a great question, Paul, and it's an area that we certainly 
we, we, we think about this a lot. Um, and let me go back to, it seems like our favorite topic here, the, the auto industry, where um, really we have robust data collection and analysis mechanisms there. We have the, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They published the, the Fatality Analysis Reporting System, the FARS that allows anyone really, whether it's consumers, researchers, auto manufacturers themselves to understand trends in auto safety over time. Um, and as a result, at least partially of this, we've seen remarkable improvements in vehicle safety. And we have crash testing, we have all of the, these standards in place. Let's think about cybersecurity. We, we certainly don't have that. What is our, our FARS database that tells us what the, those trends in cybersecurity incidents are or ideally root causes over time? The answer is that, that we don't have that today really at all. We have a patchwork of knowledge of incidents, but we lack um, universal visibility. We have a database of vulnerabilities, but no one can really precisely say what root causes are most common or, or what contributes to the most incidents. And if you think about the reason that this is so important is that going back to, to some of the, the technical points that Bob was making, um, both at an individual um, company level for technology manufacturers, as well as at a broader societal level, we need to know what the root causes of the most pressing cybersecurity incidents are so that we can drive down these systemic classes of vulnerabilities and have better security in the long run. We don't have that today. Um, but at CISA, we're taking some steps to try to build a better picture. Um, I'll highlight two, and we'll, we'll let Bob or Lauren jump in with, with other ideas. But really, two of the, the essential um, sources that we see, one is the Cyber Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act, CERCIA, which Congress passed in 2022. And once the, the rulemaking process is complete, we'll give CISA much better visibility into incidents nationally, uh, because critical infrastructure entities will be required to report cybersecurity incidents to CISA. So this is really the first national opportunity we've ever had to have a comprehensive database of cybersecurity incidents. And uh, the challenge when it comes to secure by design is really mapping this understanding that we will have uh, once the, the rulemaking goes into effect of cybersecurity incidents to the root causes of vulnerabilities and incidents. And we hope that CERCIA will really help us um, advance towards this understanding. Um, and, and then the second data source that I will highlight is that we're working to better standardize the, the root cause data between both um, the, the common vulnerabilities and exposures CVE database, which is kind of our, our national way of, of tracking um, all the vulnerabilities that we care about. Um, and one thing we've noticed at CISA and others have noticed too, is that right now, if you look at the, the list of CVEs, they're the most impactful vulnerabilities. CISA also publishes the, the known and exploited vulnerabilities list, which shows which vulnerabilities we know have been leveraged in cybersecurity incidents. It's very hard, I've tried myself, to actually learn from this what the most common causes of these vulnerabilities are, and um, even more so how these are tied to cybersecurity incidents in the wild. Um, so we are working to better reform that because we want, much like in the auto industry, we want to know what the root causes of vulnerabilities over time are 
so that both um, we, we nationally as well as individual manufacturers can go back and look at and say, hey, we've got a lot of cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. We've got a lot of memory safety vulnerabilities. Those don't seem to be going away, yet we know how to eliminate these for the most part from software. What can we do to improve that? Yeah, and, and I'll just jump on that too, you know, absolutely to what Jack said and, and also wanted to note that, you know, because of our really imperfect understanding of security or insecurity and risk, we try to, or we have traditionally tried to measure this risk by sort of this outside in analysis and looking at what customers are doing and like their, um, the way their systems are, um, are deployed or, you know, what sort of tactics they're using as far as, you know, phishing tests and, and things like that. Right. But, you know, we, tend to, in our country, push security to the farthest endpoints. And, and really, if our technology isn't going to be designed safely or securely, then it, it falls on humans, it falls on us, right? And we as humans are very sort of imperfect at um, being able to detect all the threats and knowing exactly what to do, especially when you know, attackers can often sort of exploit, um, you know, cognitive, um, you know, factors and things like that. So, you know, we, we have to really shift this understanding of, you know, what, what are the things that the, the tech, right, that, that we're using that actually contribute to risk and insecurity and shift it away from what the customers themselves are doing. Bob, you get the last word on measurement from a tech perspective? Yeah, just just one, uh, just to underscore some of the things that Jack said, just around our, uh, when we compare our industry's knowledge of how uh, accidents happen, it is in the very earliest stages. So that's a great opportunity for folks to think a little bit more about what other industries have done to achieve higher levels of uh, of quality through metrics. Jack and I did a, a great little uh, video. It was a 20 minute uh, condensed version of our Black Hat talk that we gave this year. So that's on our uh, CISA website and you can drop that into the show notes. But in it, we show some graphs from other industries and it becomes more and more clear that we simply don't have these kinds of metrics in our, in our world um, when it comes to software quality. And so I, again, I think there's just tremendous opportunities for innovation and uh, improvements in, in, that entire, in that entire field. Um, and then just kind of back to some of the themes that have been going on here. I think one of the things that is important to understand is just like in the 60s when people bought or the 50s and before they bought cars based on things like style and lifestyle and, and performance. One of the radical things that happened wasn't just the, the publication of Unsafe at Any Speed, but it was the, the, uh, the so socialization of this idea that cars could be safer, that the problem of accidents wasn't solely the nut behind the wheel. It wasn't always just the other guy. The cars had a role in the prevalence and the, the impact, if you will, of, uh, of, of accidents. And so we didn't just get better at hiring more ambulance drivers and more paramedics. We got better at a whole bunch of things, including making cars safer. And so back to the economics argument, one of the things we're trying to do is to figure out how do we socialize this idea that software can be radically more secure than it is today? It will never be perfect, but we can do a lot to help the software manufacturers think about how to do that if we can help generate 
demand. So, you know, secure by demand. And if we can figure out how to take all those different stakeholder communities that we talked about and get them to figure out what their role is and what little 5% improvements here or there, are little course corrections that will start to add up to something really large. So I think the demand side is one that we really do need to study a lot more. And uh, and I think that's going to be one of the, the primary um, areas of uh, hopefully our innovation over the course of the next few years. Well, all this has been great. And I, I'm left with, you know, at least a half dozen more questions about how do we deal with open source software? Is there a role for professionalization in in the community? You know, uh, what's the best way to characterize market failures? I mean, just who should be collecting the data? Is it CISO or someone else? We could go on for forever, but we will not. So with that, let me go once around the horn. Final final thoughts from you, Bob, Jack, and then Lauren. Sure. Uh, again, I think uh, we need to believe in the idea that software can be safer, and uh, good things will flow from that. Jack. Great. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Again, as we've alluded to several times during this podcast, we are not going on this journey alone, and we don't want to. So, so we want really everyone who's listening this to help us, to join us. Uh, please do get in touch. Uh, one aspect I'll mention is we'll shortly be releasing a request for information on Secure by Design. Uh, please do respond to that. Please engage with us. Please tell us if you think we're right. Please tell us if you think we're totally wrong. Please help us do better here because we, we really do think this is one of the, the most fundamental shifts we will have um, in spurring more secure software and, and helping protect our country. So, so please do work with us. Lauren? Yeah, plus one to everything Jack and Bob said. Um, what I want to emphasize is that this isn't just, you know, because we want better design software per se. We do, but it's really about safety, right? Safety of our people. When it when we think about national security, sometimes I think we forget about that really critical aspect is that it is about protecting people and making sure that we are able to you know, show up and, and you know, do our work and, and bring our full selves to everything we do and, and protect our country. So that's what it's about. Um, so as you think about this, really think about how this is a safety issue that we're protecting people um, and that this is just, as Jack said, one of the, a huge fundamental shift and something that um, is going to benefit us for generations to come. Well, on that uplifting note or set of notes, my thanks. Uh, 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 thanks again to Bob Lord, Jack Cable, and Lauren Zabier. I'm Paul Rosenzweig. Uh, I thank you all for listening and invite your feedback uh, as we go forward with this, uh, this endeavor, both privately at Lawfare and publicly at CISA. Thanks for tuning in. This Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org backslash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. If you're inclined, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series, on the government's response to January 6th. Or you might also want to check out our written work at thelawfaremedia.org and especially our Security by Design page that collects some of the writing we've done on this same topic. 
This podcast is edited by Jan Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Jan. As always, thank you very much for listening.